0: Welcome back to another episode of Bush School Uncorked. I'm here with my co-host Gregory Galls. Hi, Hi, everybody. Yeah. Welcome back. We are in historic downtown Bryan at Downtown Uncorked. There we go. Yep. And it's time. To, I finally got the historic part. You don't even have to remind me. You haven't had to remind me all season.
1: I uh, yes, two episodes. Uh, you have gotten historic downtown Bryan right. But we thank our friends at Downtown Uncorked for giving us the venue once again. For the podcast.
0: Yeah, we're happy to be here and we were with two incredible guests um, that we're excited to talk to and I told Greg in advance we have now had to, uh, we've now had the pleasure to interview my boss a couple times and now Greg has to do the same with his boss and my boss's boss. I'm pretty scared.
1: Are you scared, Greg? These are the highest ranking people we've ever had on the podcast. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) So, do you want to do the honors? Do you want to introduce our guests? Certainly. Our guests today are the Dean of the Bush School of Government and Public Service, General Mark Welsh, and the Senior Associate Dean of the Bush School of Government and Public Service, Dr. Frank Ashley. Thank you for being here, gentlemen. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Appreciate it. So, uh,
0: what we thought we would start with is just maybe if each of you could give a little bit of your background how you ended up here at the Bush School. I'll let you decide amongst your team over there who would like to go first. Just a few minutes on your background. What brought you to a school of public service? And uh, then maybe we can go from there. Go ahead, Frank.
2: Okay. Uh, well, I've been in the A&M system over 30 years. Uh, I've had just about every position you could have. My kids think I can't keep a job because I keep moving around. And uh, I'd, le- I'd actually retired from the A&M system about seven years ago but to back, work huh? uh, at the College Board Corporation in New York. And uh, it's sort of funny how I wound up at the Bush School because I I knew some guys in the Bush School and uh, they said, hey, listen, we're getting this brand new dean at the Bush School, so why don't you come over and and work in the Bush School? I I looked at a couple other positions and uh, I said, I'm not really interested. And they kept talking about this guy and uh, they said, at least go over and meet him. And I came over and I mean, I knew about the Bush School because I was here when it was founded, a little over 20 years ago. And I came over and met this guy sitting next to me, and we sort of hit it off. And I said, hey, I, I think I'll do this. I, I really like it. And it uh, been the best move of my career. Uh, best job I've had in the AM system.
0: What are a few of the, just to maybe give people a full picture, what are some, I know you said a lot, but what are a couple of uh, positions you've had? I mean, where do you come to this position from?
2: I uh, was a faculty member uh, in sport marketing mm-hmm. uh, for years. I was director of admissions at A&M for, two year, for three years, system provost for enrollment. I was a dean of a college of education at a Commerce, interim provost, vice chancellor for academic affairs for the system, uh, vice chancellor for recruitment and diversity for the system, chief of staff for the system. I just wanted to show you off a little bit. You're, yeah. you're right. Good I, I couldn't hold a job. I, you know, I, I, I really change jobs about every three or four years. And, you know, I keep telling the dean that, you know, I'm in year four right now, so I'm getting that itch. So, uh, look out. don't give me that look. <laughs> but I, as I said, I, I've, uh, this is my eighth position in the a m system. And I tell people this is the best one I've ever had. Because I, mm-hmm. I, I really love my job. I really mm-hmm. do.
0: Well, it's fun working with you. Thank you. We have a good time. Mm-hmm. You're a great boss. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Frank. Thanks. Mark, how about you, sir? Well, I've never done any of that stuff. <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> which, which is an important data point. Um, let me tell, is... Before I tell you about me, let me tell you one more thing about Frank. Uh, when, when I interviewed Frank for this job, the first thing I told him was, you know, you're grossly overqualified <laughs> for this position. Uh, why are you interested? And he gave all the right reasons. But after I hired him, actually before we made the commitment, I told him, I don't want to hire you and then have you go off and interview to be a university president, which is what he was in the process of doing uh, when he had interviewed with me. Mm -hmm. Um, And he said, no, I promise you, if I get this job, I'll pull my name from every search I'm in, which he did. Less than a week later, he was called by his alma mater and asked to come interview uh, in search for their new president. And he told (laughs) him no. Uh, which, which, yeah, which impressed the heck out of me, and, yeah. um, and I think should impress everybody. He, he, he lived up to his promise. Uh, my background is all in the U.S. military. I went to the Air, United States Air Force Academy. Uh, my dad had been a pilot in the Air Force, and I wanted to go fast. That was the depth of my thinking, um, and I got to do that for a long time. Uh, I stayed in the Air Force. Uh, I went in because I was in love with the airplanes. I stayed in because I fell in love with the people, and so I stayed for 40 years, um, before I came to the Bush School. And right before I retired, I had the opportunity to uh, throw my name into the hat for this job. Somebody who knew me at A&M contacted me, asked if I'd be interested. And uh, so President Bush had been a hero of mine for a long time, not because of his politics. I just liked the example he set. Um, in 1999, he wrote me a letter as well, which I still have framed in my office, was one of those random letters that uh, he sent out to people occasionally. And I remember receiving it and saying, why in the world would a former president of the United States write you know, bozo a letter. <laughs> uh, but it really impressed me that he would. And it was clearly a personal letter. It wasn't a form letter. And that impressed me. And then I heard him talking on in an interview back in the early 2000s about the Bush School, which I hadn't really heard of mm-hmm. at the time. And he, was, he wasn't saying public service is a noble calling, but that's what he was talking about, about this college that was going to prepare people to go into public service. And, and I remember thinking back then, what a great hook for a college. And so when I got the call, uh, while I wasn't planning on working full time after I retired, I thought, you know, for, for him and for that concept, um, I, I could try this, and yeah. I'm having no idea what I was getting into, by the way. <laughs> and uh, academia is its own special animal, as you you've learned in out piece, that <laughs> But it's a been a way to put it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's been a privilege. Every day's a privilege. It's been it's been wonderful.
1: So the dean, of course, is uh, typically modest. He was chief of staff of the United States Air Force. That was his last job before he came to the Bush School, member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Mm-hmm. So he used to run an organization of 700,000 people, and mm-hmm. now he runs a college of 350 students. And uh, I think the complexity level at both institutions is about the same. About right? the same, yeah.
0: But the, the 50-ish faculty he has to deal with has to be has much to be, more challenging. It has to be a lot worse <laughs> than the
1: officer. So Mark, you, you said you asked Frank, uh, said to Frank, you're overqualified for this job. And I basically asked you that same question when you interviewed for the job here. Mm-hmm. That uh, I thought you, you were incredibly overqualified for the job. And why did you want to Why did you want to come to College Station? And I recall you said you wanted to get out of Washington. Yeah, that's why.
3: I was always coming back to Texas. Texas is home. Always has been. And so uh, yeah, my dad's an Aggie. Uh, all my brothers and sisters are Aggies, all but one. Uh, all my kids are Aggies, so... And it was a place i knew very well we were always coming back to texas that's where our kids are our grandkids are it's where all my it's my my home's always been Um, but we weren't sure it was gonna be college station until this opportunity popped up the the biggest plus to this job for me coming out of what i had been doing my whole life was i felt like i still owed something Uh, i got to do incredible things that i was not qualified or prepared to do i think over the years Um, and was just blessed to be able to do it and so if i can take a little bit of an opportunity to help Men and women who want to go out and do the kind of service that so many other people have done before them—why wouldn't I help? That's why it's a great opportunity. It's a great place.
0: Yeah, it's it is. I've been here now longer than not longer than Frank, but I guess longer than you Mm -hmm. since 2014. Greg and I actually came at the same time, and uh, it's been kind of exciting to see some of the changes and some of the growth we've had under the two of yous leadership. I know one of the things I think the uh, listeners would be interested in is just. Some of the things that have that y'all have kind of tackled during your tenure here over the last four years, and some of the direction you've helped uh, help steer the school. So maybe you could talk a little bit about what has been your vision for the school during your tenure here, and some of the ways in which you feel like we've made some progress in that direction, and, and maybe some of the things that we're still kind of working working towards. Okay. So
3: what I'll start, and you you can, okay. you can okay. finish this one. That's good. Um, I, I kind of have a fundamental belief that great organizations have great people. They have a great mission, they have a great culture, they have great communication, um, and typically they have a, a great plan for the future. Um, the Bush School is young enough now that we already have great people. We have to make sure we focus on recruiting moving forward to, so that we maintain them, both faculty, staff, students, everybody. Um, we already have a great mission. I don't, can't imagine a better, better one for an educational institution. Uh, And and we have a great culture. Um, Preserving that culture takes work, takes constant work and attention and effort and kind of goes hand in hand with recruiting those great people. Um, And so I think the things we need to focus on are what are the things that get uh, a a great school to be a a really great school. Uh, For us, I think there's four of them. I think the first thing we've got to do is we have to actually expand our brand nationwide and broader within the state. Uh, the second thing we got to do is we have to uh, take advantage of success. We have to exploit the success we've already enjoyed in some programs in some particular areas and moving gra- uh, our graduates into particular career fields. And where we do this really well, we should do more of it or do it better. Um, and then the third thing we need to do, I think, is uh, look for new growth opportunities. What can we step into that we maybe haven't stepped into yet, but that makes sense in the future? And if there's any number of things that could be that. But we've got to figure this out. Is it more online education? Is it more uh, executive uh, master's degrees, shorter one-year programs, for example, in different subjects? Uh, is it uh, professional continuing education for consular officers in Houston or for government officials in Austin? What, what could it be? Uh, new training for city and county government. Those kind of things where the opportunity exists for a land-grant university to really step into a role that's beneficial to the state and the nation. I think those things are important. And then finally, we have to right-size our staff. You know, Our faculty and our student body grew really dramatically for about an 8- to 10-year period. Mm-hmm. Our staff didn't, and so we're short in some particular areas. I think one of the things that great organizations, I mentioned great communications, Great communication starts with a communications team that's capable of doing everything from internal communication and data and information flow to marketing and branding outside your own uh, walls. And we don't have a team sufficient to do that. We have one person, essentially. We added a second one. We need about five more uh, to do everything from social media and marketing to really sharing the, the great work that our faculty do in the research arena and making it look applicable and relevant to policymakers, all those things that we need to be able to do if we want to become the very best university, which is what our goal ought to be. And the final thing that uh, I didn't mention before that I think great organizations have is great facilities. And so we've, we're just starting that expansion into a little more space inside our own building, but we've got to make that space look like a premier graduate school, and then we have to figure out how to keep making it better and better and better. And that's kind of what
2: the future should look like, in my view. Whatever you know, you I think you hit it on the head right there, but you got to keep in mind in order to accomplish those things, we got to have the resources. And I, I mean, if you look at state funding right now, it's not like we're going to get a wealth of money, a big lump of money from the state. Mm -hmm. Uh, One thing that Mark has done that I think is really brilliant. And I, I tell every new faculty member that comes in when they interview that I, uh, Mark is really, um, expanded our development team. Uh, what we have to, I mean, before he got there, I think we had one part-time person in development. We've increased our development staff. And just in the years that Mark's been there, we have, oh man, just think of some of the grants that we've received. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that developing this attitude, not just in the staff, but also in the faculty too. Uh, because as I said, we're, we're not gonna get additional resources. From the state we have to develop that development culture mm-hmm. and I, I i he needs a pat on the back for that because he's really done a great job in in coming up with resources for the college cool. yeah but
3: but the dean doesn't do that the dean helps enable it but it's the faculty selling their programs and yeah. their ideas their research approach it's uh, the department heads making sure that people understand the academic programs, degrees, and certificates in their departments and why they matter uh, and getting donors interested in that. Sitting in classrooms, which you know, Greg and Lori Taylor in our other department have done a great job of opening up classrooms so guests can come sit in and hear about whether it's intelligence or, or city management or, or emergency management. Uh, we have people in classrooms learning about things that they didn't know about before. It connects them to the Bush School. Um, they see the relevance, and then they want to help. And it's, there's nothing magic about it. I believe we've got a lot of
0: people doing a lot of work. Yeah. I'm pretty excited about the new building facilities, but, you know, I learned that um, the economics department isn't. <laughs> <laughs> I've been uh, doing some of this collaborative work uh, with a friend that's mm-hmm. uh, in economics, and uh, she reminded me multiple times that uh, they were no longer... In our building.
2: They're just right down the road, though. <laughs> they, they're right, it's a very easy walk right down the street to go and visit. We met so right a Blue room. Baker instead. Okay, it was, uh, we had some nice coffee. You can still meet the 41st Club. <laughs> yeah, that's <true>. So we, <laughs> that's true. Uh,
1: we are at a point at the Bush School where we are bursting at the seams. Mm-hmm. And uh, the idea of getting the second floor of our building, we're in a three-story building. Where we are on the first floor, basically. We had a little bit of the second floor. And now we have the second floor, so we will not have to double up faculty and offices as we've had to do this year. We'll be able to give students better space. Uh, obviously, the, the you know there's uh, there's always losses when people gain, but uh, political science and economics <laughs> will do just fine.
2: Yeah,
0: they will. So one of the things I wanted to talk a little bit about with the two of you uh, that pertains to the Bush School mission and you both have been career public servants. And so one of the things that, uh, after being here six years, that I really like about our school that's different from other MPA programs, which is my background, is this specific focus on public service. So I get to go to the classroom and say, you're public servants, you have to serve the entire public uh, full stop. That's your obligation. You're not going into the private sector, most of them aren't going to be politicians. Your job is to serve the public. And so I, I wanted to talk a little bit about kind of how you, the two of you throughout your careers see how the field of public service is changing and some of the current challenges. I mean, one of the things that we talk about um, amongst ourselves as faculty that you hear in the news is in a a world of hyper-partisanship, for example. It's really hard for our students and for public servants to know how to move forward in a pathway when we have this kind of really rough team dynamic going on at our, our political level. So I was wondering if uh, both of you might give some, some thoughts about how the field of public service in particular is changing over time and some guidance to uh, former students, current students as they're getting ready or continuing their job in their, in their role as being general public servants, not partisan hacks or, or not working for the private sector, how they can do that in such a kind of a challenging, what I would say is a pretty challenging environment for them.
2: You know, um, I mean, I got to admit, I think the biggest reason I'm attracted to the Bush School and I love it so much, um, I mean, all you got to do is walk down the hall and talk to the students. They have a public servant's heart. Mm -hmm. And it reminds me so much, my whole career I was in teacher education. And you know, if you're going to be a teacher, you know that you're not going to make a lot of money, but you do it because you want to help individuals. And that's, that's the same feeling that I get when I'm in the Bush School. Um, I mean, that's why when we talk, we talk a lot about debt. Mm-hmm. That's why we would like to fund our students as much as we possibly can, because when they graduate, they may have the same debt as someone who received the MBA. When you look at their earnings... It's nothing compared to what a master's degree in engineering, master's degree in business would get. But because they have that servant's heart, I mean, I think, Mark, what, 70%? Over 70% of our students planning on being
3: public servants have actually gone into public service or to work for nonprofits to support Mm -hmm. government. You know, when I came here as a finalist candidate for the job, I was still not sure. In fact, I was having a heck of a time convincing myself that I was qualified to do the job, even as I went through the process. And I probably was never going to convince myself. Um, and But when I got here and did the campus visit, I asked every student I met, why are you here? And every one of them, in some way, shape, or form, said, because I want to serve. Every single one of them. And I left here thinking, God, I want this job. Because of them, they're, they're incredible. They're going to go into an arena that, because of this hyper-partisanship you mentioned, Justin, has changed pretty dramatically when it comes to the day-to-day environment you work in. Mm. And the thing that it spawned that is most noticeable when you're in the arena is hyper-criticism. Mm. Everybody yeah. is critical of public servants now. Social media amplifies the problem because you can be very critical and you can do it anonymously if you want. And you can reach a giant audience with no facts almost instantly. Um, And so public servants are now dealing with these distractions that they didn't have in the past. By the way, I think it is a double-edged sword. There's some good things to that, that that it brings better governance in some ways. But it makes it very difficult emotionally, not just on public servants, but on their families who have to kind of tolerate all this. Um, And it, it causes you to really have to go back and remind yourself routinely, why are you doing this? Uh, it, and be able to ignore it just by remembering, I'm here to serve. And most people are not criticizing you. It just feels like it some yeah. days. Um, and because of the hyper-partisanship, the toxic politics that you see, in, in especially in Washington, D.C., and the federal government, you tend, as you get more senior in public service, to feel more of that. And it feels very personal and it's very very much directed at you in public. Yeah. Because that's how people want to make their bones. They don't really care about you. They don't really dislike you. They just are trying to make themselves look good. Yeah. Uh, and it is painful. And it's hard to deal with some days. And, uh, and I think that's what's changing more than anything else. The motivations have stayed the same, I think. The, the reward is still the same. It's just tougher to get to the point where you feel good about it. Because people are seem to be going out of their way to make you feel bad.
2: Yeah, you know, Justin, another thing along that line, it's, it's, it's remembering why you do what you do. I mean, there have been several times that I've walked into his office and pretty much said, you need to talk me off the ledge. <laughs> yeah. matter of fact, I've walked in office several times and said, sir, would you fire me, please? <laughs> I mean, that's how bad it's gotten. But then I go downstairs, and I hang out with the students. I hang out with the faculty, and I realize... Why do what I do? Because, I, I mean, our students are incredible. They're incredible. Then I go back to my office and I'm okay. It's that whole idea of realizing why
3: you do what you do. And keeping everything in context. You yeah. know, most things that upset you are probably not national news. They're probably local news. <laughs> usually very local news. It, just it seems like national like news to me. It just feels like national news. And uh, to you, and and the other thing is just context matters. You know, yeah. n- n- nobody's died at the Bush School since I've been <laughs> yeah. there.
0: That's true. Thank a lot of heavens.
3: people, a lot of people are working hard to do the right thing, and the issues we face and the disappointments we sometimes experience are, they're just that—they're issues and disappointments. We'll yeah. get through them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think anybody in the public service here needs to kind of remember that.
1: So we're uh, now a year out from President Bush's death how has that changed the job the the focus of the school our plans for the future
3: well I think the the biggest thing its actually reinforced something for me and that's that his DNA really is in the school I was saying that before because I believed it but it, it's reinforced it for me our, our new, the new student classes who the new class that came in this year they're talking about President Bush they quote him so they were paying attention to him and his background before they got here. They're still focused on this idea of service. But I think it'll be important to us going forward that we work hard to maintain that family connection. You know, I'm looking at grandchildren right now, and uh, and it, and maybe even great-grandchildren, uh, to get one of them in here to the Bush School as a student, which I think is going to be really important to us at, at some point in time. We may have missed the grandchildren window, and we're now rolling over to the grands, but we're going to find one. Um, the family is still engaged. Neil Bush is still the chairman of our, board of, of our advisory board. Uh, George P. Bush still sits on that board um, and probably will continue until his political uh, opportunities drive him away from it. Um, so we'll, we're working to keep that connection, but we have to keep the connection because it's important to the school. Um, I, I think other than that, there's not a major impact other than um, a little bit on the donor side for the, for the development work, but we actually started this shift about four years ago. You know, the affinity donors for President Bush were aging. They were immensely supportive during the first 20 years of the school and got the school off to an
1: incredible start. They built the buildings. They They
3: did everything.
1: established a lot of the chairs
3: that
1: faculty members have.
3: The percentage of endowed chairs we have for our faculty compared Mm -hmm. to any other faculty at Texas A&M is is ridiculously high. Uh, The donors have been incredibly... lots of
1: peer and aspirin peer institutions. We have very high numbers.
3: Yeah, are donors shares. are phenomenal. So, But it's got to be a different donor base going forward. And so we have started shifting that over the last couple of years, and so far, so good, but that work never ends. So, I, so Greg, I don't think it's a major impact, but we've got to work at ways to keep his memory um, and to keep his example alive.
0: Well, is there anything that we haven't covered that either... Uh, oh, right? I have a couple more questions. Oh, go ahead then. Oh.
1: I was I was going to defer to you if you had more questions, but go ahead. But I, I I've got a couple more. All right, wait, we have time. So, Mark, what's what's the biggest change? Or let me phrase it a different way. What's the most surprising thing that you found coming into the academic? how difficult
0: the faculty are. He's not going to say
3: it, but I bet that's the answer. He probably had some (laughs) hiss about that. That's not a big
0: surprise. Um, (laughs)
3: That's not a little kept secret. (laughs) uh, uh, That's not the big surprise. There's something else about the faculty that is a surprise, I'll tell you. But I I think the the, the most obvious thing that surprised me was that administratively, it's harder to do things in a university than it is in government, (laughs) which shocked me. (laughs) But it is. Uh, much harder sometimes. I did tell you
1: that universities were medieval institutions. You did point that out. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh,
3: but that was a big surprise. Let me tell you what has surprised me about faculty members, about scholars in general. I, I knew that there was an intellect about the place that was significant. What I didn't understand is the depth of understanding and context in a particular issue or in a particular area of study that a real scholar can bring to the table. Um, And I spent my world, my my lifetime in a world where there are a lot of really common sense, you know, uh, people who had a wealth of common sense and were tremendously street smart and were problem solvers and were logic based. They could do just about anything. And if you can somehow find a way to combine that practical approach, as we have with our practitioners and the faculty, and set that side by side with this depth of context and understanding that scholars can bring to an issue, uh, uh, it, it is an astonishing enabler and so developing that connection that trust that ability to freely communicate back and forth i don't care what the enterprise is if you can do that between practitioners and scholars you can change the world and and to me that's the the opportunity is what astonished me this is a giant university it's a wonderful university it cares about all the right things. It's got incredible people. It lives in, it's surrounded by a community in College Station and Bryan that believes in all the same things and provides massive support both to the individuals, the families, and the efforts of the university. And the opportunity is incredible. It's just
0: incredible. I'm always reminded of the contextual knowledge anytime I ask Greg a question.
1: I don't get a short answer. No. <laughs> you know, if I see the red light of the camera on, I always limit my answers to about 30 seconds.
2: But when you ask me a question, I figure I can talk uh, to someone. I, like, yeah. I love it. But you it. know, I think that's, that's really what the beauty of the Bush School is the fact that we've got brilliant scholars and we've got great practitioners. And there's not a war. Between the two of them, everyone realizes that their role is to develop the students. So it takes both of those uh, individuals to develop the students. So five years from now, where do you see the school, both of you? What
1: do you think? You've been watching for 37 years. I'll be retired by then, for sure. What will be different about (laughs) it, aside from your retirement? Yeah.
3: Well, I hope that there's the, I think the most important thing is the things that will be the same. I hope the focus is still on doing everything possible to prepare people to serve their fellow citizens, whether it's in their family, their community, their city, their state, their nation, whatever it is. Um, I hope the quality of the faculty is, is as good or better than it is today. I hope that the majority of our junior faculty are still here as our senior faculty. Uh, and I hope that our application list is growing each and every year, because we did a better job of advertising, presenting our brand in a meaningful way, and reaching those great, great men and women out there who would benefit from being part of the Bush School, who we'd benefit from having. here.
2: You know, I hope that when a student says that they're interested in whatever, no matter where they are, people would say, you need to go to the Bush School. Mm -hmm. I hope that When someone's looking for an expert on whatever, and they say, well, where can I find... They could say, you need to contact this person at the Bush School. That's pretty good. Yeah, sure. Let
1: me have have one more. Go ahead. So, following up on the expertise issue. We're small. We can't do everything. So... We have a couple of areas of strength. If you had one more area of strength that we could add to our substantive portfolio, what would it be?
2: Ooh, I know what mine would be. Uh, Go ahead. Cybersecurity. Okay. I think that's just such a, a hot one right now.
3: Yeah, I, I think we have to expand in that area. If you're talking national security, we're not talking cybersecurity, you're kidding yourself. If you're talking local governance without talking about cybersecurity, you're kidding yourself. Uh, So we have to expand that. And and there are a, a menu of other things we could do, Greg, but if you picked one here in Texas, energy policy and how it impacts national security.
0: I answer? Can I say artificial intelligence? Since that's my area, <laughs> you don't count though.
2: Sure. <laughs> sure, go ahead. Yeah. Say you what you're You don't in. count though. Okay. Don't but, <laughs> but that's one, uh, the,
0: uh, We we've been uh, trying to figure out the new offices situation, and I learned really quick how much the junior junior folks matter. Mm-hmm. I'm way down on the how, list little, how little. Matter, exactly. terms you know, in terms of, in terms of my suggestion things. in our faculty meeting was that we should start with yeah. the youngest. The untenured and the people who have been here. I didn't think that?
2: this podcast was about you, Jesse. It is about me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, thought, I, thought I thought it was, it was about us. Yeah, the whole time.
0: So before we move to questions, um, I just wanted to say thank you. Uh, thanks for taking the time. And it is nice to work at a place where you can look up to and trust the people you work for, which is not something you can say of all organizations and organizations. Within the Bush School, we may not always agree about everything, and may have different visions sometimes, but it's it's a pleasure to work for all three of you, uh, because I feel like you are in it for the right reasons, and I can show up and be proud of the place I work. Which, as a millennial, we have really high standards for that. So, thank you. <laughs>
2: Thanks, Thanks Justin.
0: Justin. Okay, so we have a little bit of a crowd this evening. Uh, it's a nice thing about having some high-powered guests.
1: Hundreds of people. I see at least
0: three dozen. I see at least three dozen. Um, but uh, any questions from the crowd that you would like to uh, ask of our leadership team here? Don't be shy. Go ahead. What was your proudest moment uh, at your time at the Bush School? So the question was, what has been their proudest moment
1: during their time at the Bush School? Hey, aside from being on the podcast, right? Uh, well, I mean, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It all pales in comparison <laughs> <and you're
3: bursting. laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Thank you. Uh, Mine was uh, uh, might not be what you expect. It was actually at the first graduation ceremony for our online executive masters in public service and administration. And and the reason it was my proudest moment is because of how proud the graduating students were. There were 19 students in the class. The average number of years of public service of those students was 19 years. Uh, They were fire chiefs, police chiefs, school superintendents, amazing public servants. Uh, they were so proud to be graduating from the Bush School. Uh, we had an event over in the, you know, at in, in, in our at in, in the school, the Presidential Conference Center, and then they all all of them went to Reed Arena and walked across the stage there. All their families traveled in, some from places like Tennessee and Kentucky, and but every one of them was was there to receive their degree, and they are now, I think, our proudest graduates. They they tr- they want to support us in everything. Uh, and some, see, that was really kind of a cool thing. It was They get the Bush School completely. And they never went to a single class in residence other than the summer session. Mm-hmm. But they just get it. All of them, if you could go back to when they were 20 to 28 years old, all of them would want to come here and take your place. Which is really kind of cool.
0: It's true. They, are. They, were
2: really, they were really excited. They were unbelievably excited, yeah. That, 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 that was just a
3: big day for me. I won't forget
2: that. I guess my proudest was also the scariest. It's when I when I decided I was going to teach a class. Classrooms are scary. Yeah, managing diversity in the workplace because I hadn't been in the class. I mean, I've guest lectured a lot, but actually going in and being responsible for a class, I mean, I was scared stiff when I walked in that class. But on the other hand... I was proud. You'd you'd been on the dark side for a long time. Well, yeah. (laughs) Thanks, Greg. I appreciate reminding me of that. How many decades? How many decades (laughs) were you on the dark side? Uh, over twenty Yeah. But uh, but being in that classroom, but then seeing the students, their faces, and uh, I had the greatest time teaching that class. Uh, Matter of fact, I loved it so much. I've taught it four times since it's then. it correct do you want to add
1: my proudest moment mm-hmm. i don't think that the question was directed to me i know but i don't think it was either
0: i was just giving you an opportunity
1: well that's i mean i don't know i the, the most memorable moment for me is probably meeting president bush i don't know if that yeah. was proud but uh you know this is somebody whose presidency i hadn't studied whose foreign policy i'd studied been incredibly important in the area of the world that I studied in the Middle East and uh, when I got to meet him he, he was not the vigorous gentleman that he had been in office or, or in the first years of the Bush school but it was still it was still quite the thrill to to be able to sit down with him and share a little time that was that was that was uh, really neat
0: I'm too young to have a Protestant.
1: yeah. <laughs> the day you got the call saying would you like to have a job at this uh, yeah that was definitely the most excited <laughs> moment
0: <laughs> actually I really uh, I actually really enjoy this I mean as we were joking no. I went feeling kind of having the faith from the, from the school and to be able to come and just have co- normal down to earth <laughs> conversations with people is about What's as like? interesting as it is yes mm-hmm. you can go next <laughs> yeah.
1: By the dark side, I meant administration.
2: How
0: about UT? UT? <laughs> yeah, UT. What about it? You so, you remember who it says it's Austin. Yeah. So the question was, should we partner with the Longhorns? Which I think the answer is no. Uh, yeah. Well,
1: that's the
0: New Jerk answer is no, but this is
1: something worth thinking about.
0: So, yeah, the question was, are there opportunities, uh, given our relative strengths, uh, and location and the different things we bring to the table to have more partnerships with UT, with the LBJ school to kind of, uh, make, uh, our presence and our strengths more well known to the rest of the state and the country?
3: You know, this, this semester, uh, for example, Arnie Vedlitz, who has been in the Public Service Administration Department since before it was the Public Service Administration Department, he's been in the Bush School literally since it formed its own faculty. Uh, Arnie is actually working out of the LBJ School for two reasons. Number one, he has new twin granddaughters in Austin, and, and the family wanted to spend more time with him. Uh, but number two, for us more significantly, to build relationships with the LBJ School. And he's developing research connections, are looking at proposals for programs that we can do jointly. We have to build a better relationship with the ABJ school. And I don't think there's any reason not to. It's just been, again, faculty bandwidth and being able to get it done. But it's really important for us to be able to share that. They're a great school. They do different things than we do. And I think we bring different strengths to a partnership. I was going to say,
2: in one of my former lives as director of admissions, that's one thing that that we talked about a lot. How do we attract students to Texas A&M? Because uh, I guess one of my most infamous statements was testifying to the state legislature with the director of admissions from University of Texas. The guy pretty much point blank asked me, so why is it hard to recruit minorities to A&M? I said, you got 6th Street and you got the Dixie Chicken. It's, It's pretty simple right there. But... But I always felt that if we could get students on this campus, it's the exact same thing, thing with faculty. It may be hard to get faculty to apply, but once they come to our campus and they see the campus, they meet the faculty, they're sold. So that, that's one thing we've got to do. We, we've got to push to get, it's like students that come here for interview conference weekend. I ask a lot of, how did you wind up here? I came to interview Conference Weekend, fell in love with the place. So we, Mm -hmm. right? We
1: do bring we bring students in to uh, what we call interview conference weekend, both departments. Uh, Some of them from Texas, some of them from pretty far away, and uh, and we put them through their paces. We show them the place. Uh, They are selling themselves to us. We are selling ourselves to them, obviously. Mm -hmm. And they, and a lot of them who are who are not from Texas, and even some who are from Texas come down and find out that there aren't tumbleweeds rolling yeah. through the streets, uh, and that you know that Brazos County has, what probably four or five hundred thousand people in it by now, that uh, that that Bryan where we do the, the podcast is is restoring its former glory, uh, that College Station is actually uh, quite a sophisticated place to live. Uh, at, at, that we have an excellent school system. We have trouble recruiting faculty sometimes. Uh, we've lost some faculty members who, frequently because their spouses, yeah. say, what, what the heck am I gonna do in College Station? So I've, I've started spending department money whenever I make a faculty offer to somebody, I say, just get your spouse on a plane and come down here. You know, you've, de- you've been down, bring your spouse down. Do it next weekend, right? Uh, let them see the place. Uh, in, in an effort to kind of get over some of those things. I think the LBJ thing is is really interesting. We are unfortunately just too far away to have any really practical student-to-student interaction. There's really no way with a two-hour drive between Austin and College Station that, a, that one of our students could practically go over there to take courses, or that one of the LBJ master's degree students could practically come over to, to College Station to do courses, so that's, that's a shame because uh, as, as, as Mark said, that they have some strengths that we don't have and we have some strengths that they don't have. They would never admit that we have some strengths that they don't have, but, but we do. Uh, the other thing that, that is just inevitable in all of this is that they are our competitors as well. I mean, We, we compete with LBJ for students. Particularly, I think, in, in the Public Service and Administration Department, but also, in, to a lesser extent, in the International Affairs Department. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, we, we, we want to collaborate. You know, there's, there, there are research collaborations that, that we can nurture, but at the same time, I, I don't want students who are interested in studying International Affairs to go to the LBJ School. I want them to come to, to, the, to the Bush School. And that's that. That's
3: just baked in the cake. You know, one one side note, um, people. Somebody mentioned how how uh, College Station was a smaller town, tough to get here. I'm from Austin. It's my hometown. I went to high school there. College. When I was in high school, Austin was smaller than either Bryan or College Station are today. Which is hard for people to believe, wow. but true. The census sign at the north end of town, when I left to go to junior college, was. One hundred eleven thousand one hundred eleven, the nineteen seventy census number. So we kind of forget that College Station and Bryan really are growing, and all the things that we want to be able to offer new faculty and their families and students and their and, and their families, if they have them, are going to be here eventually. It, it's coming. So we can't get short-sighted about who we go after or why,
1: how we go after them. Hopefully, without the traffic of Austin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hopefully. hopefully we have <laughs>
0: Other questions? Do we have time? Yeah, yes. Uh, Dean Welch, we said earlier you're
1: talking about, you're about a toxic political climate in uh, Washington or another place for public service. Uh, is there any ways that just as a nation we can combat that and then more specifically push
0: So the question was in reference to um, some conversation earlier about uh, hyper-partisanship and uh, kind of the toxic, toxic environment that helps create in Washington, and did, uh, did Dean Welsh have any ideas about uh, some strategies for the country to kind of come down from some of that toxicity or the ways in which the Bush School can contribute to uh, toning some of that down?
3: Yeah, I, I think our fundamental mission is to prepare men and women to go serve in that environment and to change it from the inside. Um, we, I, I hope, in my dream world, everybody who graduates from the Bush School will go forth with an idea of exhibiting the same kind of professional values that President Bush did. Give the same kind of professional example of respected and respectful governance. Uh, Listen to all views and then make a decision that's best for your city, your state, your country, despite the political implications. If we can start doing that and just produce generation after generation of, of, of person who leaves here and does the job that way, over time it will have an effect. And trust me, there are lots of people out there looking for that example who will admire it and replicate it when they see it. The problem right now is they're not seeing it enough. Inside government, there are still phenomenal people doing great work in the public service arena all day, every day. And all of them want that kind of leadership. So let's make sure that when you walk out the door, that's what you take with you. Um, Your influence will be just magnified because people are looking for it. Right now, they really are. And I don't think this toxicity is everywhere, by the way. I think it's much more magnified on the national scene in federal government and in politics. I don't think it's nearly as strong in state governance and legislature. It's there, but not nearly to the same level. And so I think we kind of fix it from the inside out.
0: The question was, what's the difference between a public servant and a public servant who can lead the country? Um, Frank, I'll start. You
3: finish. <laughs> I, I think public service is a mindset. Yeah. Whether you're serving your, your friends, your family, your community, your city, your state, your nation, your world, it's a mindset. I think it's very possible to go be an engineer in an engineering firm and be a great public servant. I also think for some people it's a way of life because you want to actually work in the public service arena. Those two things are not that different in my mind. You just have to be willing to take less money to be one than to be the other. Um, I, I think a public service who becomes a public servant who becomes president is just someone who believes in those same things and then is successful enough in the political arena that they end up in the White House. And I think we've had public servants and we've had not so public servants in the White House over over the years. Uh, but i don't think there has to be a difference it's a mindset you know
2: i think the i mean if you think of the Aggie core values i think it's selfless service and i think a, a true public servant serves selflessly i mean it's 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 not it's not about me it's not about me it's what can i do for the people that i serve and i think that that's one thing that all of our students should aspire to be selfless
1: the skill sets are different they just are being a successful politician is a really 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 hard job
3: Yeah.
1: Uh, you hope that the politicians have the kind of analytical skills that we hope our students have but that's that's not that's not the number one requirement of the job I mean, the number one requirement of the job is an indefatigable zeal to get power, and then hopefully to do something good with it. And in order to do that in our system, you have to connect with so many constituencies. You have to connect with mass publics. Uh, I think for for the, the kinds of jobs that, that people in the, and some people in the Bush School uh, go into to politics and electoral politics, and that's great. I mean, we have to have good electoral politicians, but but the mission of the school really is to prepare people for the kinds of jobs where they can serve any, you know, either administrate, either, either, either partisan yeah. side that, that they can provide uh, specialized knowledge uh, about, about the issues that matter in, in, in people's lives and for the future of the country. And it's that, it's that kind of ethos of serving the government, no matter who is elected, that I think is very different from the kind of ethos that you need to be a successful partisan politician in the United States to get to a position of national leadership. Uh, the, the the issue of polarization in the country is way beyond what we have in the, in the 30 seconds we have left in, in this podcast. But... But i really do think that we're i hate the term deep state and i wish politicians would stop using it but we are training the people and educating them the people who will be in the administrative part of our government as presidents as governors as mayors change and and they have to have the servants attitude that they're not the boss, the, boss or the, uh, the bosses are the people that the people have chosen to yeah. lead to lead our, our, our governments, our local governments our state governments, our national government but they also have to be able to to know enough about what they're doing to sell their ideas to those people and, and then to be modest enough to implement the ideas when they come back changed and different from, from the folks at the top
3: Mm-hmm.
1: It's two different jobs though.
0: Mm-hmm. Other questions.
1: I think we've hit our hour.
0: I think so. All right. Thank you so much to the crowd. Thank you for your questions. This
2: Thanks really guys. Helps, Hundreds of people right here at
1: downtown on Cork. Oh cool, man.
2: You know, when I was in sport marketing, you know, one thing that I always wondered is how they estimate how they estimate the crowd. Crowd size? And I was with the director of marketing once on the sidelines of the football game. And I said, so how do you guys figure this out? He goes, we have about 102,000
1: here. (laughs) Just for our listeners, Dr. Ashley just looked to his left and looked to his right. It was was a visual story.
2: (laughs) It was was very scientific. About (laughs) 102,000.
0: Thank you again. I know you two are quite busy, so thanks for making the time. Thanks Thanks, for the support. We have a lot of fun, good conversations. And um, thank you so much.
1: We we do have to emphasize to our listeners that these are the gentlemen who do support us and who provide the the resources for us to to put on this high-class podcast. That's right.
0: And next week we will be recording live again with another one of our colleagues, Raymond Robertson, down one here at Downtown On At Downtown Uncorked, at downtown Uncorked um, on Tuesday night at six again.
1: February the fourth. Fourth? February fourth, that's right. 6 PM okay. As they looked around <laughs> at Downtown Uncork in historic downtown Bryan, and we thank thank our friends at Downtown Uncork mm-hmm. once again for giving us the space.
0: Yep, and thank you so much for listening.